Well, how do you measure, how do you measure something that is beyond comparison? How do you try to capture it? You take a picture, that's one idea. Draw a picture, that's another idea. Maybe try to bottle it. But how do you capture and compare someone that has no comparison? Welcome to week two of a series that we're going through in the book of Hebrews. And the greater overall theme for the book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. And we're going to compare Jesus. Like, how do you do that? How do you do that to someone who is incomparable? That's the challenge that the unknown author for the book of Hebrews writes to us this morning and why he writes to us. He compares Jesus to more heavenly beings, those that share in divinity, those that are supernatural. But as you dig in deeper and as you listen closely, you'll say the fact that really there's there's no comparison. The greater theme for the book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior. That idea is repeated 25 different times. In fact, you get a clue for that in one of our four memory verses that we'll have for this series throughout the year from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. We read it last week. We'll read it again this week. And there's a key word that's in Hebrews 1, 3, 8. We're going to read it here in just a second. It says the exact imprint of his nature. The idea about his nature means character. How do you compare God's character to anything or to anyone? That's the challenge that we have as we look at God's word this morning. So let's read this out loud together. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We focused on that last week. And this is the challenge that the author for the book of Hebrews has for us. He, he compares Jesus to angels and says that Jesus is a better messenger than even the angels. Now, why, why is he writing? Why is he writing this? Just a little context. First of all, as we go into the book of Hebrews, you will see warnings. There are people that in that day were falling away from Jesus, were drifting away from Jesus. There were also others that were reverting back to Judaism and its teaching. They were going back to old covenants, to the way things used to be, and had forgotten about the power of the gospel. And those who are scholars who look at the book of Hebrews, actually say there's another dynamic that's going on here as well, too. There's actually an exalted view of the angels that was going on at that time amongst the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis. They were teaching that when God brought the law to Moses, he actually used a mediator, and the mediator were angels. That's who delivered the law to Moses. In fact, it had gotten so much in the rabbinical teaching that Angels were even seen as a senate, as a check and balance for God Almighty. So as my friend Tim Anderson said this morning as we were talking about the service, Tim is one of our elders, he sits right over here. He said, wow, no wonder God put it on the heart of this author to write the book of Hebrews. So that's where we're at this morning. I want to invite you to open up a copy of the scriptures and follow along, make some notes. We're on Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. It 
It's on page 1033. Give you a chance to find it there. Here's where we're going to go this morning. What are we going to cover? Well, the book of, the author for the book of Hebrews lets us know about a couple clues. The first clue you might go right by. You might read it and go, I didn't even see that. It'd be easy to go by. But the clue has more to do than just a title, but it's loaded with position and honor. That's the first clue. The second clue is one that's repeated seven times. Don't miss that. And after you read through this clue, the, re the reader looks at it and goes, well, I guess there is no comparison. Two clues. That's where we're going to go. Let's read God's word. Beginning in verse 4. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Verse 5. For which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son? Today I become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment and you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? This is God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, the great I am, the unchangeable one, the list could go on and on. You who came to earth and lived in flesh amongst us, the Son of Man and the Son of God, you walked amongst us as Emmanuel, and you split history in half as both the lion and the lamb. We worship you this morning, and we acknowledge that your name is uncomparable. Angels in heaven hide their faces in, in your glory. They announce that you, they announce this birth outside of Bethlehem with joy and exaltation. Angels attended you, Lord Jesus, when you were exhausted mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in the desert, when you were tempted, and in the garden as you prayed for us and your followers in Gethsemane. Angels administer your service on our behalf, and we thank you for these unseen friends of yours who care for us. But as we look into your word, I pray that you'll let us just catch a glimpse of not them, but a greater glimpse and a grasp of your incredible glory. So, in humility, we pray that you would give us an understanding, a new measurement of your might and of your power. Speak to us individually, wherever we are, how vast and superior and how great you are. 
And all the people of God that could agree said, Amen and Amen. Well, here's the first clue. The first clue is one that you could just go by really, really quickly. And it's simply this. It's a, a short word that was in verse 4 as we went by. And the first clue is Jesus' name is greater. Now, please understand what I mean by that. Jesus' name is greater. Let me explain that. To name someone is to give something in the Bible, not merely a tag, but its very essence, its position, its power, the honor that it has. When first time we pick up this up in the Bible is when Adam is given the task of naming all the birds of the sky and the animals on the ground. It's a transfer of power. And he looked into the essence of every creature and they took a name from what they saw there. The task of naming is something that's powerful and gives identity. Jesus did this, didn't he? In the midst of a very confusing week where Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey and then was betrayed and denied and whipped and beaten and crucified. When Easter Sunday came, three women went to the tomb. And John chapter 20 records the conversation that Jesus had with Mary Magdalene. And she thought that he was the gardener. But then Jesus said something that she immediately understood when Jesus said her name, Mary. Names matter, and so names most certainly matter here in the book of Hebrews. There's a number of different names, and the first name that we come to is the name for Jesus, and it's used nine times in the book of Hebrews. It's marinated nine times, and I've listed all of them. You can certainly look them up if you, if you will. I'm going to camp on just one of those that are listed. Each time, except for one of the times, the name for Jesus is the emphatic use at the end of the sentence. And you as the reader would go, yep, yep, that is a powerful name. Remember the name Jesus means he will save people from their sins. But in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22, this is so fantastic. Hebrews 7 22 says this, in this way Jesus became the guarantee of a better promise. He became the guarantee the deposit of better promise. Um, I'm not sure about you, but maybe you have a favorite Bible app. Mine that I love to use, I've referenced it before, is one called Bible Hub, H-U-B. It's free. You can get it on the App Store. But um, Bible Hub allows different translations, and some of the unique translations they have is this, the Aramaic Bible in plain English. Yeah, I'm not real good in Aramaic, so it's real helpful. But the way they translate Hebrews 7.22 is fantastic. Listen to what it says. The covenant of Yeshua, the guarantor, is extremely better. I've been practicing that word all week, guarantor. It sounds robust. It sounds strong. That's who Jesus is. That's his name. His name is greater. The second name that you find in the book of Hebrews is the name for Christ. That too is used nine times throughout, sprinkled throughout the book of Hebrews. In different ways that it's used. It's used for an office and then it's used for a title. The most is the office. And remember the name for Christ is the name Messiah, anointed one, the one that we've been waiting for, the one to bring in a new covenant. His name is greater. That's what old man Simeon 
during the Christmas story was waiting for, the Messiah. That's what Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night in famous John chapter 3, that's what Pilate asked. A new covenant, one that is superior. And so when you sing, when you sing boldly, when you sing strongly, you are singing about the Christ. This is what we have. This is on the back of our bulletin. Listen to this before the throne of God. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Here is the clue. Don't miss the clue. The clue is his name is greater. And one of his names is Christ. That clue number, number one is also seen in the word Lord. The word Lord is used five different times and it means to be sovereign not only over the church but over our lives. The word Lord means there's no compartmentalization like I do my thing on Sunday and I do my thing on Wednesday. That's when I'm quote unquote religious. No, it's Lord over all areas of your life. When I was in high school, I was challenged by my youth pastor to invite Jesus on a date. A date. So... I did. Now, this is before Julie and I saw the light, okay? So I'm just saying that. So I dated this gal who had won a beauty pageant in, the, in one of the suburbs of Minneapolis, and she was from our youth group. And so um, I remember this conversation about, okay, Jesus should be Lord of your life over everything. And so I picked her up in my 1974 Plymouth Arrow. Very cool back then. And I said, I just wanted you to know I invited somebody else on our date. You did? I said, yeah, I invited Jesus. He's in the back seat. Shall we start our date with prayer? That changed things. <laughs> his name is greater. Seen throughout the book of Hebrews, you see this name, Jesus, nine times, Christ, nine times, Lord, five times. But this is the clincher. This is the key clue. You ready? It's the last one. The name Son is used Five times, but if you include the Son of God and Jesus, the Son of God, you get 13 times. That name is like no one else. No one else is called the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man. No one else is like that. How do you capture what is incomparable? Well, maybe you can take a picture. And so there was a picture that hung in my office for years. I didn't want didn't to miss it. Julie and I had just gotten engaged, and I don't recommend this newly engaged people, but we spent a week with my parents, okay? She had never been to the Grand Canyon before. I had been to the Grand Canyon. And so when we went to the Grand Canyon, this national park, I'll never forget what I heard my fiancé, now my wife Julie, do when she saw the Grand Canyon for the first time. This is her reaction. She went, ah! Oh! She gasped when she saw the vastness and the greatness of it. And I thought, this is something I want to capture forever. And so I took a picture, and I, I, I bought a picture of the Grand Canyon. I had it in my office, and I thought of the grandness and the greatness. Well, then my brother-in-law, he, um, he contrasted that a little bit. For one of his kids' high school graduations, 
He brought his family to the Grand Canyon. He spent three days and two nights in the Grand Canyon. And they listened, and they ate, and they slept, and they heard, and they smelled, and they lived in the Grand Canyon. This is the picture of my, fam of my brother-in-law. He looks absolutely shot. He is not in a happy place. It's a mile down, and it's a mile up. When they were done, they stunk. Their feet were on fire. Their hammies burned. Question, who experienced the Grand Canyon better? I would say my brother-in-law did. How do you compare something that's incomparable? One clue that the author of the book of Hebrews says is the name. The name. Here's the second clue. The second clue that the book, that the author for the book of Hebrews gives us is the comparisons of Jesus. The comparisons, and you quickly find out that, that comparing Christ to anyone else, well, it, it falls short. It's like just taking a picture instead of living in it. And the first one is that he has a better name. We just walked through that, but the name that's key is the Son, the Son of Man, the Son of God. There is intimacy like no angel. There's intimacy like none of us will ever have. Equivalent with God, different than God the Father. But he is God in the flesh. One of my favorite Christmas quotes, and we've just come out of Christmas, so this is a little new to us, right? Or it's a little familiar with us, right? One of my favorite Christmas quotes is from the great CNN journalist Larry King who interviewed many people and he said, my, my, my ultimate interview would be if I could interview Jesus Christ and I would have one question for him. One question. Were you really born of a virgin birth? King said, that would change everything. My favorite Christmas story is also about this son. One of my, my favorite Christmas story happens to do with jolly old St. Nicholas. He really was, I don't know how jolly he was, but there really was a St. Nicholas who gave gifts to children, but they embellished that story. He actually really lived, St. Nicholas did, and he was arrested under the Diocletian persecution when Christianity was illegal. He was arrested. He spent five years in prison, and scholars say some of that was in confinement, solitary confinement. But then Christianity became legalized under Constantine. And so he came to the Council of Nicaea, which you will hear uh, ramifications of the Council of Nicaea through the Apostles' Creed. He was at the Council of Nicaea, and having served hard times, St. Nicholas heard what was called the Arian Conspiracy, that Christ was not God. Here's a man who's done hard time. And he was listening to it. And records indicate that as Arius was spewing this venom of deceit and heresy, jolly old Saint Nicholas whooped him alongside the face. He decked the halls, if you will. Love that. There is no one like you. No one, no one like you. Jesus is worshipped by angels. Verse 6 says this. Read it, what it says. Jesus is worshipped by angels. Verse 6, let all of God's angels worship him. 
When people see angels, they're naturally afraid. You see that in the Christmas story all the time. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I'd be afraid. But the book of Revelation tells us about the angels. If you want to turn to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, it's on page 1074. Revelation is prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature. It's written by Jesus' good friend, John. And they're having this encounter, a person encounter with an angel. Listen to what the angel says in verse 9. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the words of God. That's what the angel said. Listen to the reaction of John. At this, I, John, fell at his feet to worship him. And what the Bible doesn't say is, go ahead and do that because I'm an angel. But the Bible says this. The angel said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. The book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, a very famous angel story where God, Isaiah sees God's glory and these sinless angels that cover their eyes, cover their feet, cover themselves. These sinless creatures can't even look at God. That's them, sinless creatures. In the book of John chapter 12, verse 41, don't miss this. It says this, Isaiah said this because they had seen Jesus' glory and spoken of him. The angels saw the glory of Jesus and worshiped him. Dr. Michael Kruger, who's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in North Carolina, very helpful commentary. He made these words. He said these words, are you impressed by angels? Tempted even to worship them? Do you realize how impressed angels are with Christ? They are blown away by his glory. Jesus is greater. Clue to comparison between Jesus and the angels. They worship him not the other way around. That's why he's greater. Another comparison to show how great he is is that Jesus is the ruler of all angels. He's the ruler. When it says that Jesus sat down, the scriptures tell us that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That is a place of honor and respect and sitting down means completed, not that he's tired. He's sitting down. No one else sits down on the throne of God. And you get this idea in real time with Jesus during that crazy night of Monday, Thursday, sometime in the morning on Good Friday, where we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter takes out a sword and cuts the ear off of the high priest's servant. Jesus heals the man, Malchus's ear, right on the spot. And then Jesus says this in Matthew 26, verse 53. I could call upon my father, and he would send 12 legions of angels at my disposal. 12 legions, what does that mean? A legion at that time were 6,000 of Rome's trained elite guards. 6,000 
killing machines. And Jesus could, just with a snap of a finger, call on 72,000 angels. Question, who do you think would win? No contest. Don't miss this. Are you on the side of Christ? Do you know Christ? Have you confessed your sins and said, I believe in you? You know what I'm like. Change me. Have mercy on me. But it's also a warning to those of us who are followers of Christ that we don't mess around with sin. That deep in, inside of us lives a beast of sin and we constantly need to repent and say, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. This meal that we're about to take pretty quick, Nobody deserves this meal. This is a meal for broken people who need to be washed clean. Last part about the clue of comparison. Jesus is the creator of all things. He poured the cement of creation, including angels. No one lives forever and ever. No one reigns forever and ever. No one has a footstool like his footstool. There's no comparison. So let me summarize it this way. I have great respect for this pastor. I grew up under him in college and appreciated the way he opens up God's word. His name is Pastor Chuck Swindoll. He said these things about angels and us. God's angels impress and intrigue us. Who doesn't want to talk about angels? But only God's word can enlighten us. Secondly, angels minister to us, but it's the Spirit of God in us that can change us. And finally this, God's angels protect us physically, but only God's, God's Spirit and the conviction of the, of the Son of God, the sacrifice of the Son of God, excuse me, can save us spiritually. There is none like you. None like you. So as we do, as we do Sundays, we ask a question after hearing God's word. We ask this question. You've heard the preaching of God's word. And it's more than just kind of listening, kind of grading the sermon on a scale of 1 to 10. Like, how was church this morning? Well, he was on his game. He was off his game. I liked the song. Coffee was okay. We hear the word of God and we say, Lord, what are you saying? What are you saying to me? And then, just as importantly, what are you asking me to do about it? Maybe it's a lordship issue as a follower of Christ. And maybe it's a salvation issue. Maybe you've never asked Christ into your heart and it's like maybe just a step to find out more about what Jesus is like. And if that's the case, then... We'll get you a Bible and start reading it because there is no one like him. So before we take the body and blood of Christ and we walk through that and hear that wonderful invitation, I invite you to close your eyes and bow your head and talk to the Lord. Confess your sins. Admit to him what he knows and you know that he is holy And you, friend, 
like me are needy. Talk to him. Lord, you heard the Lord, you heard the prayers of your people as we come before you and we confess that we have broken your laws and our thoughts and our words and our deeds and our actions this week. Where can we go but to flee to you, the merciful one that is like no other? So I pray, Father, that you would be in this place and as we supernaturally receive the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that there is full cleansing, full strengthening, full renewing, because there is no one greater than you. Amen. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. When they came to a place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. Soldiers also came up and mocked him and they offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And written above him was this notice. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly for getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later knowing that everything had now been finished and so scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, and they put the sponge on the stalk of the hips of plant, and they lifted it to the lips of Jesus. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It's finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here is the gracious invitation of our Lord. Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we examine our heart, there are four questions that we ask as we take communion. Question number one is, do you believe in the promises found in God's holy word? Do you recognize his presence in this meal? Thirdly, have you repented and turned from your sin? And finally, are you reconciled and at peace with fellow believers in this church? Powerful questions. For 2,000 years, Christians have confessed their faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I'd, have you, I'd invite you to stand at this time. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed are very similar. But this is the orthodoxy, this is the skeletons, this is what it means to say, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. Let's say it out loud together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Well, yeah. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Yeah. Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share in that one loaf. Please have a seat.